Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen, when the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. When a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. Welcome to the fifth day of Craftlet, day five of our twelfth day. Christmas story extravaganza. Well, today I have a little window into the past. And for every person that you hear saying, oh, they were so much better in the past. They celebrated things so much better in the past. Families were really families in the past. I suggest that you play today's audio. I have found some little gems of Christmas insight from from a long time ago so again this one gets filed under the more things change the more things stay the same and today i have three goodies for you the first one is very short and it's from elizabeth harrison now i had to record this one and i hope you don't mind having to listen to my voice again <laughs> but this came from elizabeth harrison and she was pretty interesting herself. She lived from 1847 to 1827. And she was very involved in in creating standards for early childhood teachers and, and in really promoting early childhood education. Now, she's not Montessori, but she is an interesting early childhood educator. She absolutely, in today's text, says things that I noticed and that I noticed not just in kindergarten, which is the age that she is targeting this essay to parents and parents of kindergartners, kindergarten age children, but I saw this all the way up into high school and beyond. Unlike our other days, today I am going to give you the introduction and then play you the audio and then come back and give you the next introduction and then play you that audio until we're done. So. Here is the short piece that Elizabeth Harrison wrote in 1902 on how to celebrate Christmas. How to Celebrate Christmas Suggestions for Mothers and Kindergartners by Elizabeth Harrison All festival occasions, when rightly used, have a unifying effect upon the family, neighborhood, Sunday school, church, state, or nation, in that they direct all minds for the time being, away from self and in one direction, toward one central thought. The family festivals are an enormous power in the hands of the mother who knows how to use them aright. By means of the birthday anniversaries, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving, and above all Christmas, she can direct her children's activities into channels of unselfish endeavor. Of all the festivals of the year, the Christmas festival is perhaps the least understood, that is, if one is to judge by the manner in which the day is generally observed. Why do we celebrate Christmas? What are we celebrating? Is it not the greatest manifestation of love, unselfish love, that has ever been revealed to man? And how, as a rule, are children taught to observe it? Usually, by expecting an undue amount of attention, 
an unlimited amount of injudicious feeding, and a selfish exaction of unneeded presence. Thus, egotism, greed, and selfishness are fostered where love, generosity, and self-denial should be exercised. The Christmas season is the season in which the joy of giving should be so much greater than that of receiving, that the child, through his own experiences, is prepared somewhat to comprehend the great truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For weeks beforehand, the mother can lay her plans by means of which each child in the family may be led to make something, or may do without something, or may earn money for the purchase of something, which is to add to his Christmas joy by enabling him to give to those he loves and also to some less fortunate child who, but for his thoughtfulness, would be without any Christmas cheer. In this endeavor, of course, the mother must join with heart and soul, else the giving is liable to become a mere formal fulfillment of a taxing obligation. Little children, when rightly dealt with, enjoy putting themselves into the preparations with which they are to surprise and please others fully as much, if not more, than they enjoy receiving presents. So near as yet are they to the hand of God that unselfish love is an easy thing to inculcate. Let me contrast two preparations for Christmas which have passed under my own eye. In the first case, I chance to be in one of those crowded toy shops where the hurried, tired women are trying to fill out their lists of supposed obligations for the Christmas season. All was confusion and haste, impatience and more or less ill humor. My attention was directed towards a handsomely dressed mother, leading by the hand an overdressed little girl of about eight years of age. The tones of the woman's voice struck like a discord through my soul. Come on, she said petulantly to the child who had stopped for a moment to admire some new toy. Come on, we have to give her something, and we may as well buy her a couple of dolls. They'll all be broken to pieces in three weeks' time, but that's no matter to us. Come on, I've no time to wait. This last was accompanied by an impatient jerk of the loitering child's arm. Thus, what should have been the joy of Christmas giving was made to that child a disagreeable, unwilling, and useless expenditure of money. What part of the real Christmas spirit, the God spirit, which so loved the world, could possibly come to a child from such a preparation for Christmas as this? Nor is it an unusual occurrence. Go into any of our large stores and shops just before Christmas, and you will see scores of women checking off their lists in a way which shows the relief of having one more present settled. All the great, true, and beautiful spirit of Christmas joy is gone, and a mere commercial transaction, oftentimes a vulgar display of wealth, has taken its place. On the other hand, go with me into one of our quiet kindergartens, where the sunshine without is rivaled by the sunshine within. See the white-aproned teacher seat herself and gather around her the group of eager children. Listen to the tones of her voice when she says, Oh, children, children, you don't know what a happy time I am going to let you have this Christmas. Just guess what we are going to do to make this the gladdest, brightest, happiest Christmas that ever was. Look into the eager little faces anticipating a new joy 
knowing from past experience that the joy means effort, endeavor, self-control, and self-denial. Nevertheless, that it means happiness too. Listen to the eager questions and plans of the children. Some of them, alas, are showing their past training and selfishness by their, you're going to give each of us a present? Or, you're going to have a party? Then, hear her gleeful answer, no, guess again, it is better than that, better even than that. Then, after a pause, during which expectation stands on tiptoe, I am going to let each one of you be a little Santa Claus. We are going to make not only Mama and Papa happy, but also some dear little child who might not have a happy Christmas unless we gave one to him. Listen, as I have listened to the clapping of hands after such an announcement, look at the light which comes into the eyes. Notice the eager look of interest upon each childish face as all seat themselves at the work table, and the plan of work is more definitely laid out. Go as I have gone, morning after morning, and see these same children working patiently, earnestly, and continuously upon the little gifts which are to make Christmas happier for someone else. Will you then need to ask the question, as to which is the truer way of celebrating the holy Christmas time? Not that I would have any mother deprived of the pleasure of giving to her children, any more than I would have her children robbed of their pleasure of giving to others. Let us be careful that our gifts are not gifts of useless profusion, of such articles as cultivate self-indulgence, vanity, or indolence. Gifts for children should be few and simple, such as are suggestive and will aid them in the future drawing out of their own inner thoughts or ideals. Above all, let the joy of having given of his best to someone else be the chief thought of the glad Christmas time. So, I am curious, have you experienced seeing the unhappy child in the toy store scene before? Holy smoke, that could have been written yesterday, or at least more recently than 1902. It's kind of sad in some ways that we really have not learned anything. But I also thought it was kind of lovely that the way she chose to drive her analogy home was by saying, I wouldn't want to deprive your child of that joy of giving any more than I would want to deny you the joy of giving to your child. Because I, I know for me, and I'm, I would assume for all parents, there is a great deal of joy and satisfaction that you get, that I get, from giving my children something that I think they will enjoy or appreciate or, or love. I mean, that makes me very happy. And it makes me very happy to watch them take that thing and make it their own and use it and love it and enjoy it. And I loved that Elizabeth Harrison, instead of doing what I thought she was going to do, which was, I admit, be very school marmish and very, now you, 
if you're going to be a good mommy. And I think the nice thing, too, is that I can't imagine that it is fun for the parent in the scenario that she gave with the, come on, we have to go buy dolls and she's going to break them anyway, but it's not our problem. That can't be a happy mom. That can't be a happy experience. And in many ways, Elizabeth Harrison is giving us permission to pull it back and say, okay, this year is going to be different. This year, it's not going to be a festival of wrapping paper. And I love that. And that leads us beautifully into our second text. This one is called A Christmas Pudding. And that may not sound like it has anything to do with what Elizabeth Harrison wrote about. However, Charles Knight was a publisher. He was a, he was British, a publisher, an editor, and he was an author. He was the son of a bookseller and a printer in Windsor, and he was an apprentice to his father. And then he started writing himself, and he worked in several newspapers and also household words. Now, he was born in 1791. He's one of the oldest authors that we will be listening to during this Christmas time. He died in 1873. And just to, to put your frame of reference in sync with all of this, 1860 is when Dickens published Bleak House. And 1859 is when Wilkie Collins published The Woman in White. So for those of you who've been listening to Craftlet and listened to Bleak House a couple of years ago, that should give you an idea in the, the larger timeline of what kinds of things we could expect from, from writers at the time. So I know that one of the things that we had talked about back when we did The Woman in White, when we did Bleak House, and actually when we did North and South with Elizabeth Gaskell, who was writing it for Dickens at the time, uh, one of the things that attracted Dickens and attracted writers to him and attracted him to other writers was when the the writers who he worked with cared about something more than just telling a good story. Back with North and South, we talked about the problem of England novels when we talked with Dr. Larry Uffelman, our resident Victorian scholar. Those problem of England novels, things like North and South, where something that was being discussed politically and societally at the time was wrapped up in a fictionalized package and made accessible to a larger population than it would have been otherwise. Well, a Christmas pudding does a little bit of the same thing. And I know that as the canon of English literature has expanded to include uh, more women, more people of color, more uh, different perspectives than we might have seen in liberal arts colleges before, it would be a mistake to assume that all dead white guys had the same perspective on societal issues any more than it would be a mistake to expect that all women have agreement in societal issues or all children. It's a problem to generalize. And today's Christmas pudding demonstrates that, I think, admirably. Now, this was printed December 21st, 1850. So this predates Bleak House. This predates A Woman in White. This predates North and South by five years. It still surprised me 
because so many things that pop up in North and South, in Bleak House, and even tiny little bit in A Woman in White, show up in Charles Knight's story. It's a it's a fictionalized story that then turns into an allegorical dream. So we've we've had an earlier morality play where we had our allegorical characters pop up. You're going to have very different allegorical characters pop up in this one. And if you're listening to this with small children, if you're listening to this with small children, you may find that they are not as interested in this bit as they are in the beginning and the end of today's episode. And that's fine. But if you have children in middle school, in high school, in college, please play this for them and see if they are as surprised as I was. Because I am going to be sitting my children down and forcing them to listen to it with these audio notes so that they can put these allegorical comments into context of times and issues that they've already learned about in school. But some of the fun things that we get to see in A Christmas Pudding by Charles Knight is, number one, we get to hear a recipe for a one-pound Christmas pudding. He includes it in the story, and he's not doing it on accident. So you, you have to listen to the ingredients and the spices that go into making a one-pound Christmas pudding. And then you will have to come to craftlit.com slash fifth, F-I-F-T-H dash 2017 in order to get links out to other Christmas pudding recipes. Because the one thing he doesn't tell you how to do, if you've never made a Christmas pudding before, he doesn't tell you what to do when you have all of the ingredients together. And there, there is a to-do. There are things that you must do. So you'll hear the ingredients list And then you will go into the allegorical dream with him. Now, part of his conversation is also interesting right before he has his his little reverie, because he talks about wanting to make sure that the porters get a pudding of their own. He wants to make sure that Nanny Franklin, for the children, that her family gets a pudding, and that the Cordrys get a pudding as well. Now, the Cordrys was mysterious to me because I couldn't tell if Cordry was a name now like Franklin used to be a position of being a free man a free tenant and now it's just a last name and if Cordry was a job like somebody who is a quarter is somebody who uh, if you're talking about cobblers they fastened the the cord or, or braid to a shoe or if Cordry was just just another last name I couldn't tell so I'm not sure. But the important thing, I think, is that this old man, his first instinct is, I want to make sure that these other people who do things for us, who work for us, are getting their own Christmas pudding so that they can have a good holiday. So that's kind of cool. And then he mentions, as he sits down and starts smoking his cigar, that he's read The Travelers. This was a new thing during Victorian era. And we saw kind of the end part of that in Three Men in a Boat, to say nothing of the dog, that uh, 
one of the things that happened during the expansion of the middle class that you saw from the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution all the way into World War I was you saw people who had more opportunity for traveling. One of the byproducts of that is that you had people reading travel sections in newspapers. So when he says he's read the travelers, he's not just reading the newspapers for straight up news, politics, world affairs, social commentary. He's reading about other people in other places. But again, thinking about the kinds of books that were being written at the time, these Problem of England novels, things like that, some of the travel writing is going to be about going and visiting the colonies. And that's going to be a little different than your everyday travel. And that is, in fact, exactly what he does during his dream. Now, because it's an old text and because it's allegorical and he's being a little poetical, when he is visited in his dream state, he talks about them as being the genius the genius of the raisin, the genius of the currant, the genius of the clove and the nutmeg. All of these are ingredients that he previously listed as being part of a pudding. He will give you an opportunity to find out where all of those things came from and at what cost to the country from which they came and what they have to say to him and what he answers with gives you insight into what the author himself thought about colonization and what was happening to the people there. And don't forget, this is 70 years before Gandhi and the the Salt March. This is one of those texts that when I stumbled on it, my jaw dropped because I didn't know people like this were writing back then. And it makes me so proud of humans to find a text like this from this time period. And I'll give you a for instance. Uh, One of the things that we have mentioned in a couple of books that we've done, uh, Jane Eyre is the one that comes to mind first off. And of course, if you're watching Outlander, the series, they just got to Jamaica. (laughs) If you've read the books, then you already know that. Well, in 1807, so after Outlander and before Household Words and Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins and Elizabeth Gaskell and Charles Knight wrote this piece in 1850. In 1807, England officially stopped the slave trade. The Slave Trade Act was signed in 1807. Now that matters for today's essay or story, story essay, story allegory, pudding allegory. We can create a whole new class of literature, pudding allegories, because today you are going to hear a reference to a former slave and the sugar trade. And you are going to hear the author's commentary on conventional wisdom at the time. And you're going to hear it come through in a conversation between an older man who is sitting by a fire, smoking a cigar, thinking back over his history and the current world's state of affairs. And one of those little conversations that he has with 
these allegorical characters that he's dreaming about, is going to have something to do with the sugar trade. And I was fascinated because he, Charles Knight defies stereotype. If the stereotype is that old dead white guys all were racist or sexist or small-minded or didn't think of the world outside their own backyard, or at least if they thought of it, they didn't think of it very long, they didn't think of it very hard, and they didn't think of the injustice that was inherent in a, a colonial system, then I think we would find that we are wrong in those stereotypes, in those generalizations, because clearly someone, at least Charles Knight, was thinking about this stuff. And I think the nicest part about this is he's not thinking about it in a, like I said with Elizabeth Harrison, not in a finger-wagging way, not in an, oh, now you, you need to rethink your entire political system because you know you're wrong and you're bad, and therefore everything that you have built in the empire is wrong and bad. He's not there. So I've given you a lot of introduction because I wanted to make sure that you knew what you're getting into and also knew what to listen for. If you are listening to this text with young people, middle school age and higher, I really recommend that when you listen, you go to craftlit.com, follow the link to the text. Uh, the only place I was able to find it was on a website that has the scanned household words page in a, a frame. And I tested this on the iPhone and I was actually very surprised. It works pretty well. The other thing that makes it a little bit easier to follow the text from page to page is that they have a typewritten transcription down the right-hand column of the, the web page so that even if you can't see the actual scanned page very clearly, you'll be able to read the text there. But I have links out to several of the things that the story talks about, just in case you're interested. I am positive that if you listen with young people, they will be able to link out to many more texts on the topics that get discussed in here. And I encourage you to have them put those links in the comments on the show notes at craftlit.com slash fifth, F-I-F-T-H dash 2017. It's a good place for them to share what they've been learning in school and find that people value what they have to share. You can also call at 1-206-350-1642, and I can do a compilation at the end of the 12 days of Christmas of all of the things that you have had to say as we've listened. And before we listen to A Christmas Pudding, I have to bring to your attention that the proof of the pudding is in the tasting. The proof is not in the pudding itself. The proof of the pudding is in the tasting. I know it got shortened. I don't know why. It's one of those things like when people say, I could care less. It's like, well, that doesn't mean what you think it means. If you could not care less, that fulfills the role of the insult. <laughs> if you could care less, then it's not much of an insult. Proof of the pudding is in the tasting. I hope you have access to a marvelous Christmas pudding that tastes wonderful, just like the one Charles Knight gets to talk about in this story. Here we go. 
A Christmas Pudding by Charles Knight Mr. Oldno had been romping with his children on Christmas Eve. At last they had gone to bed with flushed faces and disordered curls, and the drawing-room was deserted. Mrs. Oldno, a careful matron, looked thoughtful as she saw that the pride of the sponge-cake was utterly fallen, and that unquestionably another must be procured for the next day's festival. Mr. Oldno, on hospitable thoughts intent, half soliloquizing, said, "'My dear, we must have a second pudding to-morrow.' "'Indeed, how is it to be made?' replied the lady. "'How made? Why, of course, with plums and flour and plenty of brandy.' "'Oh, you are a precious cook,' said Mrs. Oldno. "'You think a Christmas pudding can be made as easily as a pancake, do you? "'Why, our pudding is made already. "'Come into the kitchen. "'The cook is gone to bed, and I will show it you.' "'The kitchen mantel was radiant with the brightness of brass candlesticks "'that were never used but were duly cleaned. "'Pewter water-plates also for ornament gleamed over the dresser. "'An ancient clock. "'something too big for the corner in which he stood, "'stretched up from the floor to the ceiling, "'with the crown of his respectable old head "'pressed against its whitewashed surface, "'and his vigorous pendulum passing and repassing "'behind its own peculiar little window, "'like a sentry always on guard. "'A walnut-tree bureau was still smart "'in another and larger recess "'under the polishing of half a century.' Mr. Oldno sighed as he recollected that, in his father's time, he had often taken his frugal meals in that kitchen. And now, when the family home had acknowledged him as master for twenty years, the refinement of our days had banished him from a room where his father used to sit in patriarchal dignity. There was the identical armchair, the fine old high-backed chair, which to his boyish imagination was a king's throne. Mrs. Oldno took out her family receipt-book from the polished bureau, and then read aloud for her husband's edification a pound Christmas pudding, one pound raisins, one pound currants, one pound suet, one pound bread-crumbs, quarter-pound orange peel, two ounces citron peel, two ounces lemon peel, one nutmeg, one teaspoonful powdered ginger, one teaspoonful powdered cinnamon, one wine-glassful brandy, seven eggs, one teaspoonful salt, quarter-pound raw sugar, milk enough to liquefy the mass if the eggs and brandy be not sufficient for this purpose. "'And why, my love, can't we have two-pound Christmas puddings, or four half-pound puddings?' said Mr. Oldno. "'I want the porters to have a pudding, and old Nurse Franklin, and the corderies. Fruit is cheap, and why not?' "'My dear Oldno, they always do have a pudding, every one of them. Look here.' Mrs. Oldno then lifted a cloth off a vast earthen pan, and, behold, a rich, semi-liquefied mass, speckled throughout with plums and currants, presented itself to her husband's view. He was content. He learned that at the peep of dawn the copper fire would be lighted, and the fruity treasure would be divided into several portions, 
the mightiest of which would be for the home table, and the others for the porters and the Franklins and the corderies. "'My love,' said the contented Mr. Oldno, "'as I am in the old kitchen for the first time these dozen years, "'I think I'll light a cigar, "'for there is a fire, I see, in this new-fashioned cooking-range, "'and rest for a quarter of an hour, "'after all the polking and blind man's buff we have had.' "'And so Mrs. Oldno went to bed. "'Now Mr. Oldno was a great reader of travels, ancient and modern, a kind of social antiquarian also. He read the travellers partly for commercial information and general views of life, and partly with an imaginative taste for unfamiliar scenes. The moving panoramas, the Niles and Mississippis and overland routes, had given a new intensity to these studies. The vast pudding-dish was before him, and he mused and mused over the mercantile history of the various substances of which that pudding was composed. The light wreath of the cigar crept round the old kitchen, forming fantastic shapes before it melted in the dim distance. More and more obscure became the well-remembered room, as Old No sent forth feebler and feebler puffs from the weed. Its dying fragrance mingled with thoughts of nutmeg and cinnamon, and became Sabean odours from the spicy shore of Araby the blessed. The walls of the kitchen then gradually expanded. The bright pewter plates became mirrors in which landscapes of every clime were reflected. At length all the other mirrors were absorbed by one central mirror of vast proportions, upon whose vivid pictures the contemplative Mr. Oldno long gazed with a blissful serenity. And first the shores of Malaga floated before his vision. Groves of orange trees clustered around secluded convents. The sugar-cane and the cotton plant covered the plains. Vineyards creeping up the bright mountain slopes basked in the autumnal sun, and their ponderous fruitage grew browner and browner as the white or red skin of the delicious muscat shriveled in the noontide heat. Ruins of Moorish towers and mosques were studied amidst whitewashed houses, and the brilliant columns of the Alhambra glittered as in mockery amidst its fallen roofs. By the side of the tributaries of the Guadalquivir, the Carmenes, the vineyard gardens of the Arabs, formed enchanting walks, and as our book-traveller heard the night breeze laden with a thousand perfumes whispering amidst the orange groves, an articulate sound gradually dropped upon his ear, and he saw the genius of the raisin, with the fresh vine-wreath of a Greek pacanti on the head, and the cashmere shawl of an Arabian sultana round the waist. "'Son of a vineless land,' said the form, "'behold how I labour for thee. I gather the sunbeams in my hand, and range over the salt wave of the Mediterranean to scatter ripeness wherever the vineyards bow beneath the pulpy clusters which are too rich for the wine-press.' Your ships throng my Andalusian ports of Malaga and Valencia, ranging onward to the eastern Chesme. 
and they bear to your cold and cloudy land the richest gifts of our sunny south. Why come ye every year more and more with your linens and your woollens, your glass and your pottery, to exchange with our native fruit? Why strip ye the gardens which the faithful planted, of the grapes which ought to be reserved for the unfermented wine which the prophet delighted to drink? Immortal child of the Arab, replied the son of the vineless land, your nation gave us the best element of commerce when you gave us your numerals. Your learning and your poetry, your science and your industry, no longer fructify in heaven-favoured Andalusia. The sun which ripens your grapes and your oranges makes the people lazy and the priests rapacious. We come to your ports with the products of our looms and our furnaces, and we induce a taste for comforts that will become a habit. When our glass and our porcelain shall find its way into your peasant's hut, then will your olives be better tended, and your grapes more carefully dried. Man only worthily labours when he labours for exchange with other labour. Behold that pudding! It is our England's annual luxury. It is the emblem of our commercial eminence. The artisan of Birmingham and Manchester, the seaman of London and Liverpool, whose festive board will be made joyous tomorrow with that national dish, has contributed by his labour to make the raisins of Malaga and the currants of Zante, the oranges of Algarve, the cinnamon of Ceylon and the nutmegs of the Moluccas of commercial value and he has thus called them into existence as effectually as the labour of the native cultivator. Child of the Arab civiliser, be grateful. Mr. Oldno looked for an approving answer, but the genius of the raisin had fled. The hillsides of Andalusia rapidly change into the great plain of Zante. No longer is it the woody Zacynthus of Homer, but a land of olives and vines. There lies the flower of the Levant before our home traveller, with its gardens of pomegranates and peaches and oranges and melons, and its fields of vines and currants. The genius of the current arose, a diminutive figure, winged like the Pegasus of Corinth, and having the rose of England entwined with the olive leaf amongst his hair. The genius smiled upon the listener. Welcome is your Christmas, said he, to Zante and Cephalonia. We have twelve thousand acres of our little grapes under culture for your festivities, and your ships have this year carried off our fifty million pounds of currants for your puddings and your cakes. Welcome are ye with your sugar and your coffee, your rice and your cheese. Welcome are ye with your gold. Our corn crops are gone, and without ye the Maria would not yield us the wheat and the maize which we shall need till the next harvest. It is better to grow currants in the soil which they delight in and buy our wheat than plough up our little vines for a bread-producing crop. We are sure of our bread for our currants whilst England demands plum puddings. As England is sure of her puddings whilst she weaves calico and forges steel. So a happy Christmas to you and good night.
"'The same to you, and bravo, my little free trader!' cried Mr. Oldno to the genius of the current. An English scene. It is harvest time all over the wide chalk fields of Kent. Wherever the eye can stretch in land, the golden corn is bending under the sea breeze, or the sheaves are patiently waiting for the coming wagon. On every side a visible plenty smiles upon the traveller. The genius of bread arises. He is a stalwart figure in a white smock-frock. From his straw hat to his laced boots, all is tight and trim about him. He is slow of speech, but he ever and anon mutters the word, "'Protection!' "'Protection!' exclaimed Mr. Oldner. "'Who taught you that song? "'Do you want protection against cheap bread, my friend? "'Against warm and clean clothing? "'Against a sound roof with glazed windows? "'Against a coal fire? "'Against your tea, your sugar, your butter, your cheese, your bacon, "'and your Christmas pudding? Eh, "'What are you thinking of, anything?' Call up the ghost of your grandfather, show him your wheaten bread, and ask him to compare it with his black loaf of rye. You have small wages, it is true, but your wages do not depend upon the cheapness of your produce. Your real wages are as great as you ever got in the protection days, and they go twice as far. You stand up now as a man, instead of breaking stones upon the road at the bidding of the parish." Leave the beer-shop, cultivate your garden, have a pig in the sty, send your children to school, and believe me, you will be better off than any other labourer of Europe. Mr. Oldno was excited, but he was fairly angry when the genius of Suet presented himself in the guise of a Smithfield drover, with an overdriven ox falling upon his knees in a crowded street as if imploring for rest. Mr. Oldno groaned, and was wicked enough to wish that the drover's dog was scattering the court of aldermen. The Banda Islands now filled the scene. Grouped in the Indian archipelago, they reared their volcanic peaks abruptly from the ocean, their mountainsides clothed with timber trees, and the sago palms yielding sustenance to the people of the plains. In the covert of the forest trees sat the brilliant birds of paradise, occasional visitants, but the great feature of the landscape was contributed by the nutmeg trees. It is the gathering time. The Bandanese, mingled with their Dutch masters, are plucking the peach-like fruit from their shelter of green and grey leaves. The ripe fruit has split in half as it hangs on the tree, and there is the kernel surrounded by the mace but the precious nutmeg has a second protection, its shell. The mace is removed, the kernel is dried in the sun, the shell splits, and there is the nutmeg of commerce. The genius of the nutmeg appeared. He was a fantastic figure, half man, half bird, a Dutchman's head on a wood pigeon's body. Englishman, said he, you have wrestled with me for the Spice Islands, but they are mine. You have taken from me the cinnamon groves of Ceylon. They are yours. In the sea traditions of your country you have the flying Dutchman. I am he. 
We of the Zuyderzee built up our commerce upon restrictions and monopolies. When we drove the Portuguese from the archipelago, we rooted up all the clove trees but those of Amboina, and all the nutmeg trees but those of Banda. We limited the world to a fixed quantity of cloves and nutmegs, as we limited also the commerce of cinnamon. Rather than fill the market and lower the price, we have thrown our nutmegs into the deep and made a bonfire of our cinnamon in the streets of Amsterdam. When in the Indian seas, in the dim twilight or under the hazy moon, a figure has been seen flying along the still waters in which the keel left no furrow, I was that navigator. I was pursuing the wood-pigeon, who defied all the rigours of my unsocial laws, and carried the nutmeg-seed to lands which owed Holland no tribute. I have given up the contest against nature. My spice-monopoly was ruinous to myself and injurious to my colonists. In Ceylon I saw your English diffusing comfort and equal laws, opening roads, encouraging industry, destroying forced labour, and selling cinnamon to all the world. I have made an alliance with the wood-pigeon. I have planted the nutmeg in Java, and there will I contest with you the commerce of cinnamon. I have learnt that a small demand at high prices for any useful commodity is neither so safe nor so profitable as a large demand at moderate prices. I have learnt further that the end of commerce is not to make individuals rich and support public expenditure by heavy duties, but to diffuse all the productions of nature and art amongst all the inhabitants of the globe. You have taught me a lesson. The old trade of the United Provinces has died under monopolies and restrictions. We may once more be your honest rivals under a wiser code. You want two hundred thousand pounds weight of nutmegs yearly? We will deal like merchant princes, and good men and true. Agreed, said Mr. Oldno. A West Indian sugar plantation is now mirrored, with its canes ripening under a tropical sun, and its mills with their machinery of cylinders and boilers. The genius of sugar is a freed negro. It was said that in freedom he would not work. He has vindicated his privileges in his industry and his obedience. The grand experiment has succeeded in all moral effects. But the nation that demanded cheap corn would not be content with dear sugar. We must buy our sugar wherever the cane ripens. We use seven hundred millions of pounds of sugar annually, which yield a duty of four millions sterling. Mr. Oldno thought this, but was silent when he saw the negroes sitting under his own fig tree, for the political questions which his freedom involved were somewhat complicated. He would trust to the ultimate power of a noble example, and in the meantime rejoice that the great body of the British people could buy their sugar at half the price that their fathers paid. Mr. Oldno, being somewhat at fault upon the sugar question, grew confused as new forms flitted before him. 
the solitary egg collector of cork was there in her blue cloak and her kish on her back her step was brisker than in the famine years and her light grey eye was once more laughing under her long black eyelashes she had walked from cottage to cottage some twenty miles and her kish was to form part of the many hundred egg crates that england required for her christmas puddings may the daughters and sons of erin soliloquized mr oldner never again suffer as they have suffered may plenty smile upon their fields and comfort in their cottages may they have just masters and wise rulers may they rely upon industry and not upon agitation may they the blue cloak was gone a figure started up half gnome half nereid mr oldner was thinking of his evening gambols of yes and no so with half consciousness he asked animal kingdom no vegetable no mineral yes in england yes here continued the figure i am free i fly through the land scattering blessings as widely as the dews of heaven i bring my treasures out of the bowels of the earth and from the depths of the sea i make the fields fruitful i forbid your food to perish without me the sustenance of man and beast is imperfect the herds of unfathomable forests wander to the plains in search of me the child that loves me not loses the bloom of its cheek and the odour of its breath i am the universal friend and yet kings have impiously dared to deny me to their subjects even though they should perish their crimes have been punished even now the hindu whom you have benefited in so many things is deprived of me by your fiscal injustice learn to be wiser you have freed me from the burdens of your home taxation and your industrial wealth is quadrupled i am salt guessed mr oldno to salt succeeded a singular figure as the milky genius it seemed one half dairy woman with her pail and stool decently clad in woollen petticoat and black stockings but above was a naiad of the thames with dripping locks held loosely together with a wreath of rushes mr oldno was about to harangue when a brisk power-loom weaver stepped forth with pudding-cloth in hand the water boils said he the ingredients are mixed be it mine to bind them together right cried mr oldno again our country's emblem the bundle of sticks and the pudding-cloth have each the same moral our ancestors in their civil dudgeon made plum porridge we in our united interests well bound together produce christmas pudding there was a silence and a pause mr oldno peered out the mirror had lost its brilliancy but suddenly the great pudding bowl expanded into a mighty flat dish the pudding swelled into an enormous globe black with plums and odorous with streaming sauce a holly tree with its prickly leaves at bottom 
its smooth leaves on high, and its bright red berries grew up under a crystal dome. On the edge of the dish were grouped the Andalusian with the Kashmir shawl, the Ionian islander with the wings of Corinth, the Kentish ploughman in the smock frock, the flying Dutchman, the negro without the chains, the Irish market woman, the gnome Nereid, the London naiad, and the weaver with the cloth. And they all took hands and thrice danced round the edge of the dish. And lo, out of the holly tree dropped a moustached denizen of the Palais Royal. He had a flask of brandy in one hand and a huge silver bowl in the other. Oh, nation of anti-chemical cooks, he cried. You put the cognac into the pudding, and nine hours boiling drives off all the spirit into unprofitable gas. Look at me. It is the genius of our nation to flare up. With that, he emptied the flask into the bowl and set it on fire and poured it over the pudding. And the makers of the pudding again danced round it in the blue flame. And the pudding was nothing hurt by the flare-up, but remained as sound and unscathed as the land itself after a month's polemical fire. And then Mr. Oldno volunteered a song, of which four lines remained in his memory, for he had learnt it as a child when England was threatened with invasion. Britain to peaceful arts inclined, where commerce opens all her stores, in social bands shall league mankind, and join the sea-divided shores. Mr. Oldno opened his eyes. The kitchen was in darkness, and his cigar smoked out. "'Bless my heart,' said he. "'The weights are playing the wooden walls, and the clock strikes two. Interesting, no? I thought it was fascinating. To have something like this come out when it did is just really kind of impressive. It makes me feel better about the whole human race. When Charles Knight was talking about the sugar trade, and he talked about the former slave being under his fig tree, for those of you, or your youngsters, who have listened to Hamilton, or been able to see Hamilton, Washington has the line, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree. And that's not accidental in Hamilton. Washington actually did use that phrase over and over in writing letters and diary entries. But it's also not accidental biblically. This reference to a vine and a fig tree pops up, I think, 12 times in the Old Testament. And being me, I did not shirk that rabbit hole. I went right down it and found some really interesting things about references to vines and fig trees in the Old Testament. For one thing, if you had a vine, a grapevine, a fig tree, very nutritious fruit, and an olive tree, you're pretty much set. But more than that, the fig tree is by some rabbis considered to be the original tree of knowledge, partly because the fig tree is indigenous to the land of historical Israel and historical Palestine. It's fig trees started there. And they grow in rocky soil. If you treat them this way, they produce a honey. That's where you get the phrase honey from the rock, honey from the trees that grow in the rock. The fruit from the trees were, uh, the, the individual fruits were dryable and thus portable. 
They were, you know, wonder food. They were great. They are great. They continue to have these properties. And the importance of trees specifically in Israel is something that continues to be discussed and looked to. For example, if you go back to 16th century Jewish law, one of the things that I found was if you have property and someone wants to buy some of your property to build a house on it, you have to go to your neighbor whose property abuts that land and say, you have an option to buy this property now. If your neighbor says, yeah, I want to buy it and plant crops on it, and the other guy who originally came to you says, no, I want to put a house on it, the guy who wants to put a house on it wins because a house is more permanent than a crop. And permanency, roots, lasting civilization matters more. Now, if somebody wants to plant trees on the property, they beat the house. It's like rock, paper, scissors, but with trees, house, and crops. Trees beat house, house beat crops. Crops are fine, I guess, but crops are not as solid and long-term as trees. And there were a couple other really cool stories that I found when I was looking at this. One was, if you have an olive tree in your yard and you live by a river, and the river, there's a storm and the river floods and it uproots your olive tree, sweeps it downriver, and basically replants it on somebody else's property. You, owner of the original olive tree, you do not have the right to go and grab that tree and bring it back to your property. The reasoning behind this is cultivating trees is good. Cultivating trees is good for the whole society, especially when we're talking about fruit and food-bearing trees. And the psychological reasoning behind this is that the guy who got this windfall tree, if you take it back, he is less likely to replant an olive tree because he didn't have one to begin with. It wasn't that big a deal to him. Now that he's got one, sure, he's going to take care of it because yay, free tree. But he's not really devoted to it yet. So chances are he's not going to miss it a whole lot, not going to replant it. The guy who lost his tree, he's going to replant. So if you let the river take the tree, replant it, leave it there, because then you get two trees when you used to only have one. And so the entire land and all the people in it benefit. There was another corollary to that. This is Midrash. These are the, the stories that rabbis told about the Old Testament and things that happened in the Old Testament. And there are gazillions of them. But one that I found was uh, in the beginning, the Tree of Knowledge, Garden of Eden, all that fig tree, cool. Part of the Midrash was that the bark on the tree used to be edible and was in fact very sweet as well. So you have this really great tasting fruit. You have really great tasting bark on the tree. And yet, if you eat all of the bark off of the tree, something that doesn't regrow and doesn't regrow quickly and doesn't regrow quickly if you strip all the bark off, if you eat all the bark off the tree, you kill the tree, you get no more fruit. So even though the bark is slash was in this old ancient landscape, even though the bark is edible and you could eat it, you don't because that would kill the tree, ruining it for future generations and stopping it from growing fruit. It's like land use and resource management from 
you know, 70 AD. I mean, it's, it's always so interesting to read these things and go down these rabbit holes. So the upshot is, why is the former slave under a fig tree in this particular Christmas story? And the answer is, because it tells you everything you need to know about where he's at in life. By being freed, he is now able to work hard. As Charles Knight said, you may think he's going to be lazy because that was the stereotype and the conventional wisdom at the time. But no, you're wrong. Hard worker, love and life, has a fig tree to sit under now, has time for leisure, but not just lazy leisure, cultivating a good life leisure. And who wouldn't want that? And who wouldn't want that for the world? I found Charles Knight and this particular story to be so positive and hopeful in a really odd way. I was not expecting it to be what it was. And he brings up some really serious issues. A famine in Ireland, exploitation of salt in India. He acknowledges that one of the best things that was ever given to the world was numbers from the Arabs. I mean, it's, it's just not what I expected. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I was completely gobsmacked. Our last story today is a much more traditional, sweet Christmas story. It is very sentimental. It is very much of its time. It is not the kind of story that we would tell these days, but it is kind of sweet. It comes from Abby Phillips Walker. She lived from 1867 to 1951, and that is pretty much all that I was able to find out about Abby Phillips Walker, even though she wrote a lot of children's stories. This one is called Ruth's Christmas, and I will let it take us out because you really don't need any more of me for this story. Here we go with Ruth's Christmas. Ruth's Christmas by Abby Phillips Walker 1. There was just one thing that Ruth wanted for Christmas, and that was a mother. Her father had smiled and then had looked sad when she told him, Daddy, I want a mother for a Christmas present, one just like the children in the next house have. She tucks them in bed at night and she tells them stories. I can see her from my window. I hide behind the curtains after Nurse puts me to bed and watch, and sometimes, when the windows are open, I can see her telling them stories. Won't you please, Daddy dear, give me a mother for a Christmas present? Mothers are not easy to get, her father explained. But, Daddy, you are rich and you can buy anything. I heard Nurse tell Cook you were, said Ruth. Mothers can't cost so much, for lots of poor children have them. You try and think of something else, said her father. I can't explain, but a mother is something you cannot buy. Can't you? asked Ruth. Then how do children get mothers? Do they find them? Yes, I think they do, said her father, glad to end the questioning. This, however, did not end Ruth's thinking or wishing for a mother for her Christmas present. And one day, when the nurse was busy talking with Cook in the kitchen, Ruth slipped out of the door to look for a mother. 
a long, long distance she walked, and by and by she came to a house with flowers growing in little brown pots in the window. Ruth stopped and opened the gate to the yard and walked in. She did not see a button to push, and as that was the only kind she knew about that made a bell ring, she did the next best thing. She turned the knob of the door. The door swung open, and then someone opened the door in the hall, and Ruth saw a sweet-faced lady standing there. She was not quite as young as Ruth had pictured the mother she wanted should be, but still she liked her face. "'I haven't any mother. I'm looking for one,' said Ruth between the bites and drinks. "'Daddy said he couldn't buy me one, that children found their mothers.' The pretty lady laughed, and then she hugged Ruth closer to her. "'But tell me where you live, dear. Your father will be worried. He will think you are lost,' she said. "'I live in a big house, very much bigger than this,' said Ruth. "'But it is not so pretty inside. We haven't any flowers growing in little bowls like yours. Can you tell me a story?' "'Yes, baby, I can tell you a story.' said the pretty lady, and I will, if you'll tell me your daddy's name so we can find him. Oh, his name is just Daddy, said Ruth. But what do other people call him? asked the lady. Nurse calls him Sir, and so does James, said Ruth. Please tell me a story. Are you anybody's mother? she asked, looking alarmed. Oh, dear, no laughed the pretty lady. "'Then it is all right if you can tell a story,' said Ruth. "'What is all right, dear?' asked the pretty lady. "'Why, you're my Christmas present,' said Ruth. "'You can be my mother, can't you? You don't belong to anybody else.' Ruth snuggled close, and the pretty lady began to tell once upon a time, and soon Ruth was sound asleep in the pretty lady's arms. When Ruth awoke, the pretty lady still held her, and for fear it all might be a dream, Ruth kept her eyes closed and lay very still. The pretty lady was talking to her mother. "'Don't you worry, mother dear,' she was saying. "'I'll find work somewhere. I know someone must need me, or I would not be in need of work.' "'But you will not have any Christmas at all, my dear.' and I can't bear to think that I cannot give you a present or cook you a Christmas dinner, said the sweet-faced lady. There is just one way we can have a dinner. I have the pearl earrings, your father's last gift to me, and I had always thought of you wearing them on your wedding day. We will sell them, and then we can have a dinner and have some money left. It can't be done, Mother Tarling, said the pretty lady and Ruth felt her sob as she tried to keep from crying. There are no stores open where we could sell them. It is too late in the day. Now, don't you worry about me. We will have the nicest dinner tomorrow you ever ate. I'll make a salad of what we have, and we will have popcorn, and I think we can have some fudge. But, Mother, we must find the father of this baby. And how are we going about it? She does not know where she lives. 
Ruth had opened her eyes now, for she felt somehow her new friends were in trouble, though why so pretty a lady should want to find work, Ruth could not think. "'I'll show you where I live,' said Ruth. "'You pack your trunk and call for the car, and we will go home now I have found a mother.' "'We will take the trunk later,' said the pretty lady, laughing. "'And I am afraid, Ruth dear, we will have to walk. "'You see, I have no car.' "'Just then Ruth looked out of the window. "'Oh, there is my daddy!' she cried, running to the door. "'Daddy, daddy!' she called. "'Come in here. I have found a mother.' "'The pretty lady's cheeks grew pink and then red. "'Don't tell him about that,' she said to Ruth. "'We'll keep it a secret.' Ruth's father soon had her in his arms, and was asking how she came to be so far from home, and the pretty lady and her mother told him how Ruth had come to the door, and that they could not find out who she was or where she lived. "'And so Miss Mary and I were going to walk home when I saw you,' said Ruth, "'and she is going to bring her trunk after a while.' "'Oh, yes, I had to tell her that to satisfy her,' explained Miss Mary, she wanted me to come to live at her house. Daddy, they had no car, said Ruth, and Miss Mary wants to go to work. Miss Mary's face grew red again, and this time the face of the mother flushed. It is true I do need work, said the pretty lady, but as yet I have not found anyone who wanted such work as I can do. Perhaps I can help you, said Ruth's father. "'What sort of work can you do?' "'I thought of office work and bookkeeping. "'I wanted to teach, but there is no opening at present,' said Miss Mary. "'Why not teach Ruth? "'I shall have to look for someone next year anyway, "'and you two could be getting acquainted before that time,' said Ruth's father. "'But my mother, I could not leave her alone. "'I should have to go home at night,' said Miss Mary.' "'Daddy, Miss Mary can tell stories just like a mother,' said Ruth. "'I want her to tuck me in at night just like the mother in the next house does.' They all laughed at this, and Ruth's father said, "'I guess we can arrange that by taking your mother along too. I need a housekeeper the very worst way.' Before Ruth and her father left that afternoon, it was arranged that Miss Mary and her mother should take Christmas dinner with them the next day. But before it was time for them to come, a big box was left at the door, and in it were two nice coats with fur collars, gifts from Ruth to Miss Mary and her mother. On the way home, Ruth had told her father all she had heard when Miss Mary and her mother were talking, and about the shabby coat Miss Mary had worn. Although it was hard work for Miss Mary to keep Ruth from talking about a mother by making Ruth think it was their secret and that she must not tell, her father heard only of the secret that she and Miss Mary had. But one day he asked about this wonderful secret, and Ruth told him she wanted Miss Mary for her mother, that she had found her. He told her children found their mothers, and why couldn't she have Miss Mary for hers? "'Go ask her and see what she says,' said her father. 
and so Ruth did, and her father came into the room just as she finished the question. "'What is your answer?' asked Ruth's father. Miss Mary turned pink, and then her cheeks grew red, and Ruth said, "'You're my mother, aren't you, Miss Mary? I found you, and Daddy told me that was the way children got their mothers. Please, Miss Mary, say yes.' "'Yes, please do, Mary.' said Ruth's father. And Miss Mary said, Well, as you both urge me so, I will say yes. And then Ruth's father kissed Miss Mary and Ruth, and Ruth kissed Miss Mary, and they all lived happy ever after. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining, it is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook. You can download our app for iOS devices. Android devices, Windows phones. You can listen to Craftlet on Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, Google Play Music. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs> <laughs>